Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Ravinder, do you want to tell everyone why they should join you in the chat room? Because I'm always willing to be uncertain. In fact, I think I'm always uncertain, period. Um, but that means that you're open to learning more stuff. If you think you know everything, well, then you can't learn anything. And so I'm trying to learn. And in the chat room, we learn a whole bunch. Uh, you know, uh, we share uh, thoughts about whatever you're talking about on the air. And everyone else in the chat room gives me some, you know, some good insights some different perspectives i think that always helps so come join us in the chat room it's a great group of people we always learn something new and we have a laugh at the same time so that is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat all right today i wish to spotlight the issue of emotional versus rational thinking at the time of socrates the individual is second to culture and country the idea of subjective knowledge was literally foreign to the Greeks of that day. That may be hard for us to grasp, but it was oracles that provided answers to questions that were not specifically embodied in custom, tradition, or law. The subjective experience had no place or value until Socrates, with his irony, began to question the sophist and others. Through the use of irony, Socrates placed value on the subjective, and today we understand this through his admonishment, the unexamined life is not worth living. During the 19th century, the German Romantics took this idea of subjective experience to the extreme, literally attacking all customary traditions. For the Romantics, feeling and emotion trumped all else. Philosophers like Kierkegaard and Hegel responded treating the Romantics as scoundrels. It would appear that today we live in a world where both extremes abide. There are those who elevate objective fact above all else and those who cling to the subjective as the only way we really know anything. So the question enters, when is the process of ratiocination more important than our emotional leanings, or is it ever? I can feel very strongly about a subject regardless of what my intellect may instruct. Today's show, Jealousy, may be one such example. Instantiated in this feeling is some level of certainty that the so-called facts must be wrong. I think we can all call the memory a time when our feelings ran contrary to our intellect. Indeed, this is not at all uncommon when it comes to sex or love. For myself, I think about my relationship with Ravinder and remember considering all of the reasons it simply would never work. She was too different from myself to ever expect a positive outcome. Not only did she come from a background I did not understand, one of arranged marriages, caste systems, and the like, but she was in many ways the antithesis of myself. Now, almost 30 years later, those concerns seem trivial. So is that to say, allowing my emotions to trump my rational thinking is the right course of action? Sometimes you get lucky, and I believe that is the case with Ravinder. For today, I'm convinced that allowing our emotional biases to rule is the perfect path to generally unwanted results. That said, where Ravinder is concerned, eventually it was my reason that pointed out to me how empty life would be 
without her. Our subjective feelings are important and in many ways define us. However, where Kant was convinced that the only way we could know an object was through our perception, and therefore perception was more important than the object, this is not the case with objective reasoning per se. Our emotional lives should be somewhat supported by reason. This should be obvious for when we ask someone why he or she did something or liked something, they're quick to provide an answer. Albeit, the answer is often something they make up or they fail to understand. I have discussed the notion of free will on many occasions, and today there is little dissent about the realization that if we have free will at all, it is limited. Our every thought is given us by the subconscious, and so in that sense is our every choice. We fail to make many good choices because a better alternative is not offered up to us. The only way we gain additional options is through study and reason. The study of ourselves and the world around us leads us to options and alternatives we might not otherwise have any clue about. Reason is the gift that sets us apart from the rest of the animal world, and that alone should inform us of where our priorities lie. My thoughts, what are yours, Ravinder? You know, you've got me going in a few directions there. First of all, I have to say, how dare you, ratiocination? <laughs> I knew you were going to use that. Like, who uses that in a normal sentence? Lots of people, dear. Okay, and I have an official survey now to everyone listening in, okay? <laughs> if you have ever used the word ratiocination in a normal sentence talking to normal people, please do write to me. Um, and then I will concede that I was wrong. Until then, I would say no, <laughs> no. But just because you didn't study philosophy or do any of the fine readings while you were becoming a, you know, a biologist, a microbiologist, a bioethicist, well, a bioethicist would have read these things. Okay, okay. I still concede that I concede. I still state that I am. Correct. I can okay. see nothing. But to go back to the emotion versus reason, I think, you know, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I think it's more a case of a balance between the two. First of all, it's not just luck that you and I worked out. The fact is you overcame reason, and I did too. You know, we have this the huge differences, everything I did with you. I mean, I had friends who wanted to lock me up because I was behaving so out of character. I was a good little Indian girl, really. Um, you know, <laughs> I really was. And then to, you know, fly off with a guy that I've only known a couple of days and meet up with him in Las Vegas. Yeah, that was. But there was something else. There was something more that, I mean, I knew from before I saw you from the moment I heard your voice I remembered you that's not reason that's not rational that's not anything what does that the word no mean you said I knew something I did you it see, was emotion it was that something inside uh, that tells me there's that instinct and then you've also got you know that same instinct comes into play with inspiration sometimes you can be presented with an argument that is very reasonable very rational you know everything seems to add up but that little voice inside of you says no something isn't right there um, and I think that's where some people can can fall apart. Some people will just go after their emotions and totally ignore the reason. Me, I use that little urging to go delve into the reason more. So you say, you know, back to you and I, you say that in time you saw there was a reason, but that's in retrospect. That doesn't count. No, you that know, wasn't in retrospect. <laughs> that was a deciding factor. <laughs> Bottom line, it came down to reason. I think the two of them are integrated. Uh, very often so integrated that it's hard to separate um, one from the other. Um, you know, emotion is linked with our thinking processes, and it also guides our thinking processes. 
and these processes that are unconscious or subconscious, if you ever take the time, we had this conversation at lunch, to follow those thoughts, utilizing mindfulness instead of just focusing on breathing, to follow that little thought that comes in to see what the next thought is and how they might relate to one another. Just that realization that one thought leading to another thought to another thought means there is a relationship. Then you begin to discover that I don't think you can entirely separate emotion from reason. Well, but if you have to come to a decision, the decision should be a rationally based decision. That's, that's my perspective. If you have to come to a decision right now and that's all you've got in front of you, then I would agree with you. Well, I would sooner or later, whether reason. it's right now or down the road, how long did it take me to come to a decision? Sooner or later, you know, wherever that is. Anyway, all right. <laughs> That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show was preempted for the Pac-12 basketball tournament. The week prior featured Professor Ken Miller, and we discussed his work and book, The Human Instinct. How we evolved, they have reason, consciousness, and free will. Elijah wrote, what a great show. I do hope you bring Miller back soon. Well, your wishes are command, Elijah. He will be joining us again on March 29th. Well, we'll get the opportunity to flesh out a lot more of um, the discussion that we had earlier. Judy wrote, great show. Sounds like a book I want to read. CB commented, all together now. God made man. But he used the monkey to do it. I hear this in my head every time I hear the evolutionist, intelligent design theorist speak. Moving on. Dudley wrote, I'm currently using your products and I can feel changes taking place. It's a journey, but I feel that I am on the right path with your InterTalk programs. I bought the Eliminating Self-Sabotage series from a fundraiser for the radio station WBAI in New York. Fundraisers, we do a fair amount of those, don't we, Rev? For good causes, and we're always delighted to do so. Jonathan wrote, I love the variety of guests you host. I also like the fact that so many of them are the professional, influential thinkers of our day. You must read a lot to keep up with them. Well, thank you, Jonathan, but I don't, I don't think I keep up with them, but I do read a lot. Okay. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now, we have a special event coming up pretty soon at East West Book in Seattle. So, Ravinder, take a moment and tell everyone about it. We do indeed. Um, we actually have two events. One is on Friday, March 30th from 7.30 to 9 p.m. And Eldon and I will be talking about the ins and outs of self-sabotage, why we do it, how, we, how to identify it, because we all do it at some point and how to work around it. So the Friday evening presentation will be very practical, giving you very practical tools um, on how to improve your life and get rid of some of those self-sabotaging tendencies. Um, and then on Saturday, March 31st, from 10 o'clock to 4 p.m., we are having a Mind Mastery Intensive. Um, so it's going to cover a whole lot more than just the sabotage aspect of it, but they're going to be, you know, how your mind works and how you can get it to work with you and how to achieve success. But you have to understand, first of all, how the mind works and how you intake information and how all this stuff happens. Now, Eldon's got some really fabulous um, slides and videos and stuff that he shows in that. It will blow your mind. It really, really will. Um, it, 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 you know, whenever he plays those, the audience always goes, what? How do you do that? Oh, but we will show that to you and we will sh explain to you how it all works. And... Yep, from there onwards, the sky is the limit for you. So I do hope you can join us. That is at 
East West Bookstore in Seattle. So that is on Friday, March 30th from 7.30 to 9 p.m. And on Saturday, March 31st from 10 o'clock to 4. There's two different um, presentations there. And if you book your seats early, there are discounts as well. So I would recommend that you contact East West Bookstore in Seattle and reserve your seats right now. We look forward to meeting you. All right, come on out, meet us in person. All right, now to today's show, The Jealousy Cure. What do you think? Could jealousy actually be helpful in some way? Professor Robert Leahy's copy offers this. Could jealousy be a positive thing? In this groundbreaking book, Robert L. Leahy, author of the hugely popular self-help guide, The Worry Cure, invites you to gain a greater understanding of your jealous feelings, keep jealousy from hijacking your life, and create healthier relationships. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Robert L. Leahy, Ph.D., Yale University, completed a postdoctoral fellowship in the Department of Psychiatry, University of Pennsylvania Medical School, under the direction of Dr. Aaron Beck, the founder of Cognitive Therapy. Dr. Leahy is the past president of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, past president of the International Association of Cognitive Psychotherapy, past president of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy, director of the American Institute for Cognitive Therapy, and clinical professor of psychology in psychiatry at Will Cornell University Medical School. He has received the Aaron T. Beck Award for Outstanding Contributions in Cognitive Therapy. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Leahy. Thank you, Eldon and Ravinder, for having me on. Oh, it's indeed my pleasure. You. you know, you, there there's a lot of praise about your book, The Jealousy Cure, a lot of it. And, and, and it's not uncommon to read that it's by far the best self-help book on jealousy ever written. Now, I can tell you this. I haven't read them all, so I can't give it that praise, but I will say it is the it is an outstanding book. It is the best I've ever read on the subject. I congratulate you. Uh, Thank you so wonderfully much. accessible um, to anyone and uh, I, well, I just loved your book. So Thank you. We like to know three things on this show, Professor Leahy. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And of course, how do we use it? To that end, Please share with us what directs your life's ambition and passions. Well, I guess what directs my life ambition is trying to help people overcome depression and anxiety and have a valued life. And I probably the single most important event that um, moved me in that direction was when I was pursuing an academic career of research. One of my best friends from Yale committed suicide. And that really affected me to make me want to dedicate my life to trying to help people. So that's kind of the motivation behind it. You know, and, and I'm gonna, I'm just gonna add this. I think your passion uh, comes through in the way you, you know, you communicate with people. I've read more than your jealousy cure. We'll stay on that one today. But uh, uh, I, I think it's pretty clear to the reader that that. That is your intention, and and, and that's you. refreshing. A lot of books today are about self-service uh, platforms for some success plan. Um, your book doesn't seem doesn't communicate that at all. It communicates truly a helping hand. Thank you. All right, you heard today's spotlight, Professor. Jealousy is a strong emotion. What role does reason have to play in mitigating this emotional response? Or should it, does it? Well, the thing that's interesting about your referring to the Greeks uh, is that uh, Plato uh, and the character of Socrates in the Republic um, 2,500 years ago basically was against uh, expressions of emotion. Uh, it was against um, music. He was against uh, tragedy. Uh, he was against... Uh, any time of intense emotion, he thought it got in the way of reason. Yes. And of course, as as you point out in your uh, uh, you know your introductory comments, that emotion is really a core part of our existence. And in fact, emotion really comes comes from the uh, the Latin word uh, to move out of, 
that gets us to do things. And it's interesting that, and in, you know, I'm a cognitive behavior therapist, so you might think I have an anti-emotional attitude, but I actually, I don't. I actually think that that's something that we need to address the values of emotion. And jealousy is an emotion that has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years in humans. You find it in animals. Uh, you know that the research actually shows that dogs are more jealous than cats. Uh, horses are jealous. Uh, babies are jealous. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's a universal emotion. And what's intriguing is that it's sort of been looked upon as an emotion you should never have. That you're jealous because you're insecure or because you have low self-esteem. I don't think we can reduce jealousy to such a uh, frivolous uh, set of issues. I think jealousy is a much more important uh, issue for people. You know, for example, uh, the, uh, the evolutionary psychologist David Buss uh, wrote in one of his books that when he was in college, he's, he thought, if my girlfriend wants to go out and have sex with anybody, uh, it's her freedom. She can do with her body whatever she wants. Why should I protest against that? And then David Buss goes on in the next sentence and says, but I changed my mind when I got a girlfriend. So, you know, you can try to be rational until you confront your basic human nature, that things matter to you, and things matter to you because they have an emotional import for you. Okay, let's turn to your work in your book, Professor. And for those in our audience who may not be familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, let's take just a second to explain what that consists of, just elementary. Well, basically, the, uh, the cognitive behavioral approach, there are two parts to it. The cognitive approach is that our emotions are often the consequence of the way we think. Uh, although I'll, I'll agree with you, Eldon, that our thoughts are also a consequence of our emotion. Uh, so what we try to do is help uh, patients look at their thoughts and examine whether they're realistic. Uh, are they you know, exaggerating how serious something is? Are they engaged in fortune telling? Are they always taking things too personally? So we try to examine those thoughts and test them out and see if we come up with more realistic thoughts. The behavioral component is changing a person's behavior. So if a person is depressed, they tend to be passive and isolated. Uh, so we try to do what we call behavioral activation, get them to do rewarding and challenging things. All right. You stated in an article in Psychology Today, jealousy is a killer. What do you mean by that? It's the leading cause of partner homicide in the United States. So uh, people who are jealous uh, in the extreme are more likely to become abusive physically and psychologically and sexually. Uh, it's, a, it's related to increased partner regression. And in terms of uh, homicide, it's the leading cause of uh, domestic homicide. Uh, and in fact, where the, uh, where the partner is jealous of sexual infidelity, uh, the kind of homicide uh, that the man might engage in against the, the woman uh, is more likely to involve strangulation than any other kind of provocation. In other words, you know, the word jealousy actually comes from the Greek word zeal, uh, zeal, Z-E-A-L. Uh, so when it's zealous... Uh, jealousy is a kind of a feeling of being hijacked, feeling overwhelmed with rage and anxiety and the idea that you have to do something to protect yourself. It's a very powerful emotion. That gives rise to two questions. I'm sorry, I did not mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, that's fine. Right. No, okay. people, people, people kill other people and they kill themselves and they kill their children over jealousy. But that gives rise to, you know, Two thoughts, two questions, if you will, of course. You know, the difference between jealousy and envy. And then I turn to the current issues that, you know, we're all focused on somewhat today, these school shootings. It, right. it seems to me that, you know, there's a fit here for either jealousy or envy and or both. 
on behalf of the motivation behind these shooters. What are your thoughts on that? And please delineate or, 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 or give me the difference between envy and jealousy if I'm using them incorrectly. Sure. Yeah, so jealousy is always about three people. So jealousy would be, for example, if I thought my wife was interested in somebody else. So it would be about three people. So jealousy is a threat to a, a primary relationship. Uh, envy is more about one's position in a status hierarchy. So I might be envious of somebody who publishes a book that's successful. Uh, so envy is about losing status. And in, in regard to the school shootings, it's hard to really single out um, uh, one motive, but, uh, but one, one possible factor is the sense of humiliation and marginalization. Uh, you know, the one thing that, even though, even though the rates of homicide have dramatically decreased, in the United States in the last 30 years, mass shootings have dramatically increased. So it's not like we're becoming a more violent culture, it's that we're becoming a culture where we have more dramatic uh, examples of mass killings. Now what could be a reason for that? Well, one would be if you feel marginalized and helpless and invisible, uh, which might involve some envy, feeling like you know I'm, I'm lower down in the status hierarchy, but I can go, go out and kill a whole bunch of people and now I'm the most famous person in the United States for the next couple of days. So that, that might be one of the possible motives for, for people going out and doing the mass shootings uh, and getting the sense of notoriety and showing themselves that they're not invisible, they're not humiliated, they're now dominant. All right, Professor, we've got a hard break that I have to get to. When we come back, I'm going to ask you, you know, are men and women jealous of the same things? We're okay. speaking with Professor Robert Leahy about his work and book, The Jealousy Cure. It is a tremendous book. I highly recommend it. Go out and get your copy today. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website, Cognitive Therapy NYC from New York City, CognitiveTherapyNYC.com forward slash Dr. Leahy, that's D-R-L-E-A-H-Y. Now we have a video for you in our chat room featuring Professor Leahy and addressing seven steps to stop worry. So if you're not in the chat room already, now is the time to get on over there, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicky wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. What a wonderful, wonderful world this would be. I know that 
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Robert Leahy about his work and book, The Jealousy Cure. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website, cognitivetherapynyc.com forward slash Dr. Dash L-E-A-H-Y. That's abbreviated D-R Dash L-E-A-H-Y. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. And as you know by now, it's a new uh, avocation of mine, if you will. Indeed, I'm writing a book about it. So we just played some of Art Gartfunkel performing What a Wonderful World. So please tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? <laughs> well, I guess it's about love. Uh, it's a wonderful world if you if you have somebody you love who loves you. And uh, I think uh, that underneath the jealousy thing, we have to realize uh, that people are jealous because things matter to them. Now, I remember a number of years ago, a friend of mine said to me, wouldn't it be great if your wife said it'd be okay for you to go out and have affairs? And uh, I thought about it for like a minute, and I said, no, it would not be great, because it would mean to me that she didn't love me enough to be jealous, and it would mean I probably couldn't trust her if she thought it would be okay for me to do that. So it's interesting that that we, we often think of, je- I'm not a particularly jealous person, but I'm not a I don't have a reason right now to feel jealous, but I can imagine being very jealous under the right circumstances. And I think that jealousy has been a disparaged emotion. It's like, oh, you're crazy, or you have low self-esteem, uh, or you're insecure, that's why you're jealous, as opposed to things matter to you. And in fact, one of the things that people do do at times is to try to test the person out by seeing if they can make them feel jealous. Uh, and, you know, in, in one study actually showed that uh, people who reported that their partner was jealous were more likely to be together five years later. Now, of course, you have extreme jealousy that drives people away uh, and can be very, very destructive. But jealousy is an emotion that indicates that something matters to you, that someone matters to you, that you val- it, it's related to your values of honesty and commitment and transparency. And it's something that we shouldn't just sort of disparage and kind of rule off the planet uh, because we want to be rational all the time. Well, if I understood you correctly, I mean, in our first half hour, you're essentially saying that we're hardwired uh, for jealousy and envy. Uh, So, you know, it would seem, you know, like anything else that we're hardwired for, you can fight that all you want to fight it. You're not really ever going to put that fire out. You're just going to have to put a lens on it that, um, what, accommodates or facilitates a healthy lifestyle. Have I got that wrong? Well, I, th- I think we are hardwired to have emotions like jealousy and envy. And as I said, you find them uh, universally, and you find them in animals and children. Uh, so I think we are predisposed. Uh, but on the other hand, we can use some of the techniques that we have in cognitive behavior therapy and other kinds of therapy to help people cope better with the jealousy. So, for example, one of the distinctions I make in the book, The Jealousy Cure, is the difference between having a feeling of jealousy and the action that follows from it, the action of interrogating uh, or threatening your partner or trying to control them or stalking them, uh, those actions often become more problematic than the emotion of jealousy. I think the other part of, in, in regard to what you're saying, Eldon, which I think is so so important, that we're kind of predisposed and we're kind of hardwired. And so we have to learn how to live with having emotions we don't like. Uh, we can't uh, we can't just simply think we're going to feel good all the time or we're going to be rational and on top of things all the time or that our partner is always going to be happy and feeling good all the time. So we have to sort of make room for jealousy, both our own jealousy and the jealousy of our partner. And kind of a metaphor that I use in the book is what I call the relationship room. So if you imagine a large room filled with lots of different objects and those objects are emotions and experiences and memories 
different possibilities. We can think of jealousy as one of those objects in the relationship room. You make room for it. I'm not trying to get people to get rid of jealousy. I'm trying to people, get people to learn how to live more productively when they have the feelings or their partner has the feelings. All right. Professor, are men and women uh, jealous of the same things? Well, it's interesting that, uh, that you know, people often say are men more jealous than women or whatever. What the research actually shows is that men tend to be more jealous about sexual infidelity and women tend to be more jealous about emotional closeness. And from an evolutionary point of view, that makes sense because the, uh, the woman always knows that the baby is hers. Uh, the man never can be quite sure. So men are more threatened from an evolutionary point of view by sexual infidelity because they might end up taking care of somebody else's child. It's not their own biological child. So you have this, uh, this kind of universal pattern of uh, men being more jealous and threatened by sexual infidelity and women by emotional closeness. That's interesting. Uh, do you have the same differences when it comes to something like envy? Uh, both men and women are envious. Uh, women, and, and I'm sure this is changing uh, in our culture, uh, even as we speak today, probably it's changing. But uh, men tend to be more envious of the traditional male standards of success, like uh, power and money. And women tend to be more envious of somebody else's looks or attractiveness in general. But I'm sure that that's going to be changing in future research. That's interesting. I guess, you know, I, I'm compelled to ask, why are some people so much more jealous than other people? It's a good, good question. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, as I said, some people claim it's due to low self-esteem, but the research actually is quite mixed in that. Some research shows people who are more jealous have lower self-esteem. Other research shows it has no relationship. And I argue that there are cases in which a person's jealousy can be due to high self-esteem. Basically, you don't treat me that way. Uh, I, I've seen people with low self-esteem actually have a difficult time acknowledging that they feel jealous because they don't feel that they have a right to their jealousy. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, is you know, having an attachment style where you're anxious about uh, you know, people leaving you in general or people rejecting you. So people with an anxious attachment style are more likely to be jealous. Also, the, the stage in the relationship. So when you're first dating somebody the first couple of dates, you're less likely to be jealous because you don't have that much invested. Uh, as you get more involved and you have more invested, you're more likely to feel jealous. Uh, so the investment in the relationship, uh, the uncertainty that you have in the relationship, how certain you are of the other person's commitment, that also has an effect on jealousy. And also, whether you believe you have good alternatives. So if you think, gee, if this relationship doesn't work out, I'll be alone for the rest of my life, you're more likely to be jealous because you feel desperately dependent on that relationship. Uh, on the other hand, if you think, gee, there would be a lot of possible good partners for me that I could choose uh, among, uh, you're less likely to be jealous. So we have some of the, but you know, what's, what's interesting, by the way, is in my field of cognitive behavior therapy, almost nobody's written about jealousy or envy. I find that intriguing. <laughs> yeah, so do I. I've got a question for you out of left field. That just sure. you know, um, I read, and, and I'm try, I was trying to remember where I read this, but it's been a couple of years ago that um, swinger lifestyles, open marriages, right. uh, yeah. free yeah. sex, in part, yeah. often were compensation mechanisms. Uh, intended to cope or deal with jealousy. Uh, have you done any work in that area? Does that make any sense to you? Well, I, I, I am not a fan of what's now called polyamory that used to be called open marriage. And, and the little that I know about it from talking to people who have you know, patients of mine who've uh, been involved with that or tried to get their partners involved with that or whatever, 
is that uh, it often is a cover for somebody who's afraid of commitment, but all wants to have his cake and eat it too. Uh, it's often uh, a narcissistic person who, in a way, objectifies the woman. Uh, it's, it's usually the, the, the man who, uh, pursue, who pushes for the polyamory or the open relationship. Uh, and I, I remember talking with somebody uh, a couple of years ago who told me about a person he knew who had been, a woman who had been involved with a man who wanted to have one of these open relationships, and, and they did. Uh, and then he dumped the woman because he finally found somebody. So he was using it as a hedge thing that he had the girlfriend and he could mess around with other women until he found the real one. And so she was very, very devastated and felt betrayed and used. Uh, I, I just think it, it, it's sort of a, uh, a lifestyle that maybe some people can, can engage in. I, I can't imagine myself engaging in that. But it's, it's one that some people think they can do. But uh, my, my book is not for those people. My book is for people who really want to have a committed relationship. All right, let's turn to that. The monogamous couple that really want a, a faithful relationship. Can you ever get over a betrayal? Yeah, so, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, uh, people do have uh, experiences of infidelity. And I've worked with uh, patients who have been unfaithful or their partner's been unfaithful. Um, and you can, you can use it or lose it. You know, you could lose it and just simply walk away and say, I'm not going to let anybody do that to me, and that's the end of it. Or you could use it as a turning point. So, for example, a person might find in their marriage that they're, let's say, they're not having intimacy for years and years, and then one of the partners, one of the spouses, uh, has an affair. Uh, but you could use that as, okay, so we could, we could either get divorced or we could look at how we could change our relationship in the future and make it better so that either partner is going to be motivated to be unfaithful. Uh, and so surprisingly, that does tend to work out if both partners think, let's use this in a way to be constructive to make it better. Having said that, the partner who's betrayed is likely to go through a long period of distrust and anger and inter interrogating uh, the one who had acted out, and my advice is, you know, you got to pay your dues. Uh, don't tell them they shouldn't feel that way. Don't tell them you got to trust me. You've got to just accept that your partner's going to be really annoyed and distrustful for a while. And I think good relationships involve accepting the emotions that the other person has rather than telling them they should not feel that way. All right. Are there disadvantages to attempting to rebuild trust? It's hard. Um, it's you. You have to really evaluate if the person's uh, motivated. Uh, how bad did they feel about the betrayal being exposed? Uh, what were the reasons? It's a very difficult thing to do, um, but some people are able to do it. All right, you you describe in your book the jealousy hijack. What 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 are you talking about? Hijacking jealousy. Yeah, so you know when when people have the feeling of jealousy, it's not like a like a mild emotion. Usually, it's kind of an intense, sudden emotion. They feel overwhelmed by it. They feel a little bit crazy uh, at times, and so their thoughts are running away with you know predictions that my partner's going to have an affair and dump me and go off with somebody else. That could happen, but a lot of times people have jealous feelings that are, and, and thoughts that are not based on what the reality is going to be. I mean, people, people do flirt, they show an interest in other people, people show an interest in your partner. That doesn't mean that the relationship is going to end. Uh, but in some cases, people treat kind of normal interactions with other people as major catastrophic threats, and then they get hijacked, they, they get overwhelmed. So one thing to think about is if you're going to get overwhelmed, step away from that 
use of mindfulness that you described earlier, Ellen. Use of mindfulness, step away, take a deep breath, reflect on it, think is there another way of looking at it, am I jumping to conclusions? Have I been wrong before? Uh, do I have to respond in a way that is extreme, like yelling and screaming and threatening? Or can I talk it through with my partner and share the feelings uh, without labeling them as basically a criminal? Uh, so, some, you know, as I said earlier, I think a lot of times people get hijacked and they begin engaging in this behavior that makes everything worse. You know, the stalking, the threatening, the checking, the interrogation, that sort of thing. I want to talk to you about contagiousness with regard to jealousy. I uh, I had a friend, uh, a professional, who uh, uh, his best friend also, both of them doctors, uh, both of them psychologists, and uh, their wives kind of hung out together. One of their, well, actually one was a psychiatrist, the other a psychologist. One of their wives turned out to be unfaithful, and it was discovered. She was having a... A regular once a week here it is you know episode okay um immediately my friend i knew both of them but the psychologist was my friend uh became obsessed with the idea that because his wife was so close to this other woman that she too must have not just known right. about it but be having an affair Right. And I mean, yeah. he became so obsessed that he hired right. private investigators to follow her. Um, right. I mean, it, it ruined their relationship. How common right. is that? It's interesting observation. I, I've seen that sort of thing, uh, the kind of emotional contagion thing that, you know, if this person's going to be uh, unfaithful, then your people around them are going to be unfaithful. It's like it's based on the theory that, uh, that the birds of a feather flock together. Uh, and there may be some truth in that, and maybe there are people who, who do that sort of thing. But, of course, it's not, it's not a logical thing. I mean, it's not like if your friend is an alcoholic, then you're an alcoholic. Or if your friend is unfaithful, then you're unfaithful. Uh, but that's an example of where the, your, your friend's wife, uh, your, your friend was hijacked by this, uh, by this belief that, uh, that she had caught the infidelity uh, in disease. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like when when people get overridden with intense emotion, it's very difficult for them to to be rational. And by the way, the word rational doesn't mean logical. It means to see things in proportion. It comes from the Greek word ratio. So seeing things rationally might be well, yeah, you know, she was unfaithful, but my partner, my wife is different, and so. Uh, we look at it in a proportional way in terms of the context rather than this kind of emotional contagion type thing. All right. Let's, you know, we're running short on time, Professor. On a proactive sense, I, I guess I have two, uh, a compound question. I mean, one, how can we, how can we know that our partner is jealous if they don't inform us? And how, what, what, what is it that we can do to minimize or eliminate those kinds of feelings since they could be so natural. I mean, in my psychologist friend's instance, his trigger was not so much that this other woman did it. It was that his wife didn't tell him it was going on and they were so close. So that that one dishonesty was the trigger for it all. Right, the kind of compounded dishonesty. Yeah, so... uh, one, I think one, one thing to do in, in a relationship is to develop some ground rules. And, uh, you know, I know when I first uh, uh, was dating my wife uh, 31 years ago, whatever, that uh, I was still friendly with uh, uh, a couple of ex-girlfriends. And, and there was nothing going on. Uh, and I remember, like, you know, having dinner with an ex-girlfriend and thinking that my wife was being irrational, that she didn't like that. And then I, and I thought about it after, and I thought, what an idiot I was. <laughs> you know, I, was I was thinking, gee, I don't think there's anything, and there wasn't anything going on, but I was sort of thinking that, oh, I'm, I have no interest, uh, so she shouldn't be bothered. And I think what you have to think about is when you're involved with somebody, you make a commitment, you get married, that you have to think about what you do 
to comfort the emotions of the person you're with. That doesn't mean you do everything that they want. But when you're committed, you're not completely free. That's what commitment means. Commitment means I'm putting my chips on the table. I'm in the game. Uh, you have to commit to the action. Uh, but some people think that, well, I had no nefarious motivation, so you should trust me. Uh, so I think having very clear ground rules and examining those ground rules and being willing to respect the emotions that your partner has and, and help them help them cope with the emotion rather than tell them they should not feel that way. All right. In 30 seconds, Professor, how's the best way our audience can get your book? Learn more about you. Uh, go to Amazon.com and just type my name in. Um, and uh, the, the book, I've, I've written 26 books. So uh, this is my recent one. And uh, I hope it's going to be helpful. I mean, you know, when you write a book, you never know how it's going to do. But if it helps one person, then it's been worth doing. And I do think that this book can give people some perspective and some support to know that their feelings are understood. They're not alone. Uh, it's not a sign of being a crazy person if you're jealous. But there are ways that you can get some control over how it controls you. You don't want to be hijacked. And it's a, it's a great book, The Jealousy Cure. Do go get a copy. I highly recommend it. I want to thank you, Professor Leahy, for your experience your willingness to share your research and uh, for writing the book. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us next time, same time, same place. Until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.